Have you ever noticed how we as human beings love to be wowed? I mean, we love spectacles. We love it when things just blow our minds. And it seems like humanity's capacity to be amazed is constantly growing. I mean, think about how we just see this displayed in our entertainment. It used to be the hero just had to save the city. And then that was a great film. That was a great story. But that wasn't enough. So now the hero had to save the entire country. And wow, look at this guy. He saved the entire country. But then we still wanted higher stakes. And so now our heroes have to save the entire world. And then that's not enough. Now our heroes have to save the entire universe. I mean, one Spider-Man isn't enough. We need all three Spider-Men in one movie to keep the very fabric of space and time in our universe from being ripped apart. And don't get me wrong, some of this I am 100% here for, right? I'm slightly embarrassed how many times I've seen that movie. Uh, but we constantly want things to be bigger and more impressive. We are constantly looking for films or experiences that wow us and that impress us. And unfortunately, that desire often informs and even shapes the way we view our spiritual lives in the church. Now, don't misunderstand. I think our desire for amazing experiences is actually something that God has wired inside of us. But I believe God wired us with that desire so that we could find that desire's fulfillment in God. But what I've noticed and what I've often experienced in my own life is that when I'm not finding that fulfillment in God, I, I look to lesser things to find that fulfillment, and I wind up shortchanging or missing much of the slow or seemingly unimpressive work that God wants to do in my life. Oftentimes, the growing work that God wants to do in us, the changing work that God wants to do in us, the renewing work that God wants to do in our lives isn't always Big. It's not always impressive. It's not always grand. And when I don't find my fulfillment in God, I wind up shortchanging some of the seemingly unimpressive work that God wants to do in my life. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning's message is going to be a standalone sermon. Uh, it'll probably be a little bit more devotional in nature than some of our other messages. Of course, next week is Palm Sunday, so we'll be looking at that passage of Scripture in our morning service. And then the following week, uh, April 24th is, of course, Easter, and I hope you're praying with us about that. I hope you're inviting your, your friends and your family to join us as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And then the week following Easter Sunday, we are, going to be, we are going to begin a study through the book of Romans, and we will be working through that book uh, verse by verse, very slowly, taking our time, seeing what God's Word says in the book of Romans, so I'd appreciate prayers for that. But what we're going to be looking at this morning it's something that God has been teaching me these last few years, and I feel like, especially these last few months, God has really been working these truths into my heart. So what I'd like to do is read all of 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and then we'll focus on verses 26 through the end of the chapter for our message this morning. Let's read. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. If you need one, there should be one close to you, uh, on the, a black hardback one close to you in the row there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 1, the Bible says, Paul called... As an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say they were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our message this morning. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. 
And Lord, while we constantly seek to be wowed or impressed, I pray that our eyes would consistently be fixed on you and that we would be wowed and impressed by who you are and the amazing salvation that you have given us and how you took what seemed to be nothing and you took that nothing and you won for us our salvation. Lord, I pray that that reality would constantly wow us and amaze us and that we would realize we don't have to be impressive. We don't have to be special. We don't have to have it all together because we are not the ones who do the work. You are. And I pray that as your spirit anoints your word this morning, that you would cause us to continue to grow into righteous trees planted to glorify you in the day and age in which we live. We ask this in your name. Amen. It's easy to think that God's best work is the larger-than-life Pentecost-style moments, isn't it? It's easy for us to think that works of God have to be parting the Red Sea big, or we just assume God wasn't in it. It, it, that, That couldn't have been God. I mean, it wasn't big. It wasn't grand. It didn't blow of our minds. I mean, it's true throughout Scripture. We are told to marvel at God's work, which obviously includes the big ones. I mean, Psalm 105.5 says, Remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders, and the judgments he has pronounced. We are made to marvel at the amazing works of God. But somehow along the way, we've picked up on the idea that God only uses the pastors or the missionaries who leave everything behind, go live in a grass hut, and eat bugs for the rest of our life so they could share the gospel. Somehow along the way, we picked up the idea that it's, it's the rock star worship leaders that really make a difference. It's the celebrity pastors that really are making a difference in the world. And somehow we've bought into the lie that, man, we need to have these impressive credentials and people need to be these amazing, eloquent speakers and they need to impress us. But what Paul is reminding the church at Corinth here in chapter 1 is that they are not society's elite. In verse 26, he's like, uh, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were a noble birth. He's like, look, you guys, you're not society's elite. You're not politically powerful. You see, the church at Corinth was divided. They were bragging and trying to one-up each other based on who led them to Christ. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And some would try to even get real spiritual and be like, well, I'm of Jesus, so I'm better than you. Hoity-toity. God didn't save you because you were impressive, Paul is trying to say. He's like, consider yourselves for a minute. And then Paul reminds them that they're not really what the world considers impressive, but that is actually good news. Which leads us to our first thought this morning. God does not need us to be impressive. Let's be real for a moment. The big moments that fill our Sunday school stories are not everyday life. Most of us aren't leaving everything behind to go be a missionary somewhere. Does that mean God is working less in our lives? No. Absolutely not. It's true, the Bible is full of story after story of amazing miracles done by men and women of God who we look up to, and in some degree, rightfully so, we we look up to and we revere these people and we respect them. But I want us to consider who the Bible was actually written to. Ordinary people who would never be apostles, who would never be church planners, who would never be missionaries in the way that we typically think about them. 
Even Jesus Christ himself, our Messiah, our Lord and our Savior, spent the majority of his life as an obscure blue-collar worker. Let that sink in for a minute. In a world that practically worships celebrities and notorieties and awesome experiences, we've begun somewhere along the way to view quiet faithfulness as second best, if not even compromise. Mundane or unimpressive feels like last place. If our lives seem routine, we, that, that must mean that God's not using us. God's not working. How could God be in this mundane, routine existence of mine? And the danger here is that we miss the slow, quiet, building work that God often does in our lives. Most of our spiritual growth does not happen in an exciting moment at summer camp or in this amazing conference Lives aren't usually turned around because of one awe-inspiring lit worship service. It's usually slow, incremental, routine, often boring growth. Consider what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians verses uh, 9 through 12, chapter 4 verses 9 through 12, he says, About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this towards all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, and he goes on to define it, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now, these verses here in 1 Thessalonians 4, they, call, they follow a call to avoid immorality. In the first part of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, hey, we need to avoid immorality. We need to avoid lustful passions, and we need to make sure that we're not taking advantage of one another, but he calls us to live holy lives. So the flow of thought in 1 Thessalonians 4 is avoid these sins because God has called us to live in holiness, and now this is partly what holiness looks like. A quiet life that minds its own business, that works hard, we don't need to work at gaining a following. We don't need to worry about how slick we are. We don't need to be the most big, impressive church. We don't need to have all the programs. We don't need to impress people. God doesn't need the powerful or the influential or the cultural movers and shakers to accomplish his work. In fact, when you read scripture, as we're going to see in a moment, he often chooses the exact opposite to accomplish his work. God does not need us to wow people. God is the one who does the wowing. The gospel is impressive enough. Think about it. That is a wow. The creator of the universe became a man and died for our sins so that we could be reconciled back to the Father. We don't need to dress up the good news to impress people. It's good news all by itself. It's wow all by itself. It's literally awe-inspiring. It's the sum of awe. We use that word awesome, I think, way too flippantly sometimes. I mean, the word literally means the sum of all awe. You could put that on the gospel. It is the sum of all awe. God doesn't need us to be impressive. He's impressive enough all by himself. Verse 25 of our text says, God's foolishness is wiser than human strength or human wisdom. 
and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's not saying he's foolish or weak, but what he's saying is his wisdom and his strength is so far beyond what we could ever imagine. What impresses us doesn't impress God. Never in the history of redemption has God ever looked down and thought, that person has a really impressive resume. I want him on my team. I'm going to save him because, man, he's just got it all together. Never. We don't need to impress God. God doesn't need us to be impressive, but instead we see throughout Scripture that God often deliberately uses the unimpressive. Look at verses 27 and 28. Instead, Paul says, God has chosen, God deliberately chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. God loves to use unimpressive things to do impressive things. We saw how he did this with our salvation earlier in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let's read them again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those of us who are called, both Jews or Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The cross was an instrument of death that many despised. And yet God used this cruel instrument of torture and death to bring about our life and salvation. Talk about flipping something in the world's eyes to do something amazing. Preaching the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because the cross was a sign of Roman occupation. To kill the Messiah was the exact opposite of what they wanted. They wanted to overthrow Rome, not be crucified by Rome. So it was a stumbling block. Preaching to the cross seemed foolish to the Greeks because they wanted to be wowed by wisdom. They wanted to be impressed by intelligence. And yet, how could death accomplish anything? How could death be impressive? This is, this is nothing. He died like a common criminal. That wasn't impressive to the Greeks. But God takes so seemingly weak and foolish things to demonstrate his power and wisdom, and he provides for us a way of salvation. He took a form of punishment and allowed that to become the means of us experiencing forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, God doesn't need us to produce some big production or have it all together so that his power and wisdom can be displayed. In fact, he chooses to take things that the world looks down on, and he uses them for his glory. He has deliberately taken what is insignificant and even despised 
to produce our amazing salvation, to produce what we sing about and what we celebrate and what we marvel at and what we orient our whole lives around. God deliberately gives disproportionate impact to the weak, to the humble, and the foolish so that Christ receives all the glory. You don't have to be an eloquent public speaker. God can use your awkward gospel presentation to a friend to win someone to Christ. God can use your bumbling attempts at sharing the good news. You don't have to say it perfectly. You don't have to have it all together. God can take what, might look, what, what we might look down on. God can take what we might roll our eyes at, and he can do amazing things with it. God intentionally uses weak people to do his best work, and this is good news because we're all weak. None of us can offer up ourselves to God to be, God, God be impressed by me. No, none of us can do that. God delights in using the weak, the insignificant, and even the despised things in the world to advance his kingdom. This helps us understand that our everyday lives don't need to be this grand epic in order to be used by God. Seeking to live a peaceful and quiet life is not compromise. It's not settling for less. I would argue it's a command. <laughs> that tells us that the mom changing dirty diapers or the dentist filling cavities or the trash man picking up trash, we are all pushing against the fall the same way the missionary is who sells everything so he could go live in a grass hut. God's extraordinary grace is made for ordinary, mundane, unimpressive moments. Because God delights to work in those mundane, ordinary, unimpressive moments. Even the repetitive, boring moments that chafe against our soul. God's extraordinary grace delights to work in those situations and in those circumstances. God's extraordinary grace is made for slow, tedious moments of growth. This helps us to rest when our life is full of problems and we don't have an easy answer for life's difficulties. Rarely is there a quick fix or an easy solution for life's problems, but what we do have is a Savior who walks with us and gives us amazing grace. And he doesn't need us to have our lives all perfectly put together with this neat little pretty gospel bow on top for us to be used by him. God might call you to do something radical and impressive. He might call you to do something epic. And if that's the case, go for it. We will support you. We are behind you. But more than likely, God is calling us to do something ordinary. And what we see in Scripture is that God works. God advances his kingdom. God rewards the routine, uncelebrated kindness and obedience of his children. I mean, think about what he said in Mark chapter 9, verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Something as simple as giving a cup of cold water. The most routine, mundane thing that we would never even think about. Nobody celebrates. Yes, look at the way you handed that person that cup of cold water. But Jesus celebrates that. In the movie The Hobbit, Galadriel asked Gandalf why he chose a hobbit to be part of his plans. This was kind of baffling to her because hobbits weren't impressive. They weren't warriors. They were called halflings because they were half the size of everybody else. They didn't have grand halls. They weren't noble warriors. They were small and seemingly insignificant homebodies. 
To choose one for Gandalf's quest seemed odd, but I love what Gandalf said. He says, Saruman believes it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love. And what we see throughout Scripture is that God says, even the simple act advances my kingdom. Now, I want to add a word of clarification. Our human nature easily swings from one extreme to the other, doesn't it? And so we might be tempted to think, well, if it's not this big, grand epic, then why bother doing anything at all? This is not a call to do nothing. This is a call to be faithful right where we are, regardless of how slow or mundane the place might be. This is a call to value the small things along with the big things. After all, this is God's story, not ours, which leads us to our final thought this morning. God deserves the glory alone. When we recognize that we are weak people, we can stop trying to keep up a facade to try, we can stop trying to impress everybody and instead look to the sufficiency and goodness of our God. We can look to the sufficiency of the word. We can look to the sufficiency of the gospel. He gets the glory for the work that he accomplishes. God's kingdom is in advance because we have it all together. This isn't about us impressing people so that we can be viewed as great. This is about God using things the world looks down on so that he can get the glory. Consider verses 28 through 31. Paul says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that, he gives us the reason in verse 29, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul here is quoting the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah said in uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, this is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. What Paul is doing is he's showing us that the only thing we have to boast about is the fact that God knows us and God loves us and God has saved us. He takes his Old Testament passage and he applies it to Christ in 1 Corinthians 1. And he says, look, Jesus, God used Jesus to give us his righteousness. God used Jesus so that we could experience his faithful love. God used Jesus to be the satisfactory payment for justice. God used Jesus. So because God used Jesus, we can boast in Christ and Christ alone. We can't claim to have accomplished anything. Like Paul says, Paul wasn't crucified for you. We didn't save ourselves. We can't claim our justification. We can't claim our ongoing sanctification. We can't claim our future justification. The only thing we bring to the table is a hot mess. Like, seriously. Christ is the one who does the work. 
Christ is the one who gives righteousness. Christ is the one who brings spiritual growth. Christ is the one who will one day give us a glorified body and redeem all of creation. This is why Christ alone is worthy of praise. No person who has ever lived on this planet except Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so when Paul addresses the division at the church of Corinth, he asks earlier in the chapter, is Christ divided? Obviously no. Was Paul crucified to you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Obviously no. Only Christ saved us, and only Christ can unify us. And so what Paul does here at the church of Corinth to address their disunity, he actually kind of brings them to this humbling reality to show them that, like, look, none of us are impressive. None of us have it all together. None of us can claim that we're anything to earn God's salvation. This is all Jesus. This is only Jesus. And so what he does is he lifts our eyes to Jesus so that we can realize our humble place because that's the only way we're going to walk in unity. Only Christ saves us. Only Christ can unify us. Only Christ who became the wisdom of God for us, gives us righteousness, sanctification, and ultimate redemption. This is why only Christ is worthy of our worship. God deliberately uses unimpressive things so that we don't settle for what is merely humanly impressive. God's not going to let us take the glory for his work. That's a recipe for disaster. Settling for what is merely human impre humanly impressive will always leave us searching and hungry for more. It might give us a taste, but it always leaves us unsatisfied. When God takes unimpressive things and uses them to do something amazing, we behold how great He is, and all we can do is stand amazed. And it's at that place of amazement, it's at that place of being wowed and awestruck by God that we experience satisfaction on a soul level that we never would have otherwise. We should be careful not to underestimate seemingly small, normal, or mundane things because God often does great things through them. Yes, God loves to do the big miracles, parting the Red Sea, calling down fire from heaven. Boy, I wish I could have been there for that. How awesome would that have been? Feeding thousands. But we also see throughout Scripture how God delights in the poor widow woman who was generous with all she had, but all she had was two mites. God delights in the little boy with a small lunch who just brings it to Jesus. The disciples looked at that small offering, and they were almost dismissive. I mean, they brought it to Jesus, but they were like, what is this amongst so many people? Like, this kid's got a Lunchable, and there's thousands here. God delights in the grain of a mustard seed-sized faith. We see throughout Scripture that God delights in praying, fasting, and generosity that's done in secret, that nobody knows about. These last few weeks, I've been blown away at our church's generosity when it, in, in the area of missions and wanting to see the kingdom of God advance in places that we may never see. That tells me that we as a church understand this. And there's been some big wow offerings that have been given to advance his kingdom, and there's been a lot of small sacrificial offerings that have been given to advance his kingdom, and Jesus looks at all of it, and he delights in all of it. Jesus delights in humble servanthood. We saw how he delights in giving a cup of water. He delights with being faithful, regardless of how many talents you have. 
we tend to look at the 12 disciples and we tend to look at how they, man, they turned the world upside down. They're so awesome. But we miss the fact that they were unlearned and uneducated men. And it wasn't them who turned the world upside down. It was Jesus through them. Jesus through unlearned, uneducated, unimpressive men. And we often miss that the process of turning the world upside down was often met with setbacks. It was often met with difficulties. It was often met with being thrown into prison. For all but one of the disciples, their life ended in martyrdom. The only one that wasn't martyred, he wasn't martyred because he miraculously survived being boiled alive in a pot of oil. So he got exiled to an island for the rest of his life. None of the disciples went into retirement high-fiving each other saying, yeah, we did it. (laughs) I mean, even the way Jesus came into this world was humble and unimpressive. Consider the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. What Isaiah is helping us understand was, if you just saw Jesus in a crowd, you wouldn't notice him. He wouldn't stick out. You wouldn't be like, ooh, there goes a king. You wouldn't have been impressed simply by looking at him. That's partly why people were so bewildered by him. Like, Jesus? Like, the guy we grew up with? Carpenter Jesus, average Joe Jesus, he's the Messiah? Are you kidding? See, when Jesus came to this earth, he demonstrated not only with his actions, but even his very appearance, what Paul is trying to drive home at the church of Corinth. And this helps us understand that God does not measure impressive the way we measure impressive. One writer said, as long as we expect big to come now, and on the world's terms whether in our churches, in our cities, or in our own souls, we will be tempted to forsake the seemingly small or the seemingly weak instruments of faith and faithfulness. Instead of planting, watering, and waiting for God to give the growth, we might try to pump the soil with chemical fertilizers. And that's what we do so often, don't we? Paul is still addressing this in 1 Corinthians when he gets to chapter 3, and he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? He says they are servants. Servants. Through whom you believed. And each one has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Paul is saying, me, Apollos, we're not anything. We're nothing. We don't give the growth. Only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. We have to guard against the thinking that we have to go big or go home. That type of thinking that discounts small, quiet, faithful obedience. Because that is often how God gives growth. It's, it's, it's not impressive to just quietly be faithful at pouring your life into somebody. But we're not the ones who give growth. God is. And the fact that we even get to be God's co-workers at all is amazing. That's mind-blowing as it is. <laughs> Paul's like, we're nothing. 
But for some reason, God lets us be co-workers for him. So sure, bring on the most mundane, boring task, because I get to co-labor with God. Yes, the acts of planting and watering, they seem routine. They seem mundane. They often feel like they're not important. And I know, and, and I struggle with this sometimes. Sometimes when we're in the middle of this routine faithfulness, we just look around and we say, God, what's even the point? And what that reveals about my heart is, is that I'm looking to be impressed by the world's standards and not by what God says. It's true. Quiet faithfulness doesn't pump us up. It doesn't rally the truths. It doesn't inspire vision. But we're not here to promote ourselves. God might call you to do something big and radical, but more than likely, he's calling you to do something ordinary, something quiet. Because it's in these small, seemingly insignificant acts that we partner with God. And God says he rewards those small, seemingly insignificant acts of faithfulness. But God alone gets the glory. Oftentimes, our own spiritual growth seems slow. It's easy for us to look at other people's life and think, man, their growth seems slow, right? How many of you spouses are like, man, I wish my spouse could get their act together? But slow does not mean God is not a part. God is in the mundane. God is in the routine. Don't think that quiet faithfulness means you're not making a difference. Don't think that because nobody knows who you are, or nobody sees your generosity, or nobody sees your sacrifice, or nobody is bringing you up on the stage to celebrate your faithfulness over the years. Don't think for a moment that God doesn't see, and that God doesn't delight in, and that God won't one day reward that, because he will. It's okay to long for. It's okay to pray for. It's even okay to work towards big things. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about big things. We've talked about working to end human trafficking. We've talked about global missions. Those are big things. Two weeks ago, we looked at end times. I don't think we could describe anything about what happens at the end of our days as small. <laughs> but while we anticipate, while we pray for, and while we work towards big things, let's not despise being faithful in the small things. Because it's those small things. It's those unimpressive things the routine, the mundane, it's in those things that God uses to accomplish big things. We're not the ones who produce the big things. God does the work. We are faithful. So be encouraged. God intends to use all of us with all of our weakness and all of our obscurity and all of our quirks and our problems. God's like, I'm going to use it all for my glory. It's okay to be a nobody if you're serving Jesus because he is the one who does big things. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to wrap up our service, I pray that your spirit would just continue to enable us to be faithful in little things. Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up and impressed by what the world thinks is impressive or big and to miss the small and seemingly insignificant work that you want to do. But I pray that we as the Fresno Church would not despise small beginnings, that we would not despise small things, that we would be encouraged in our faithful, often quiet, unnoticed pursuit of you. Because it's in that quiet pursuit 
that we get to co-labor with you. And I pray that this church would bring you much honor and glory in our quiet faithfulness.